A special welcome if you're visiting with us this morning. It's great to have you with us and we hope and trust that your time with us this morning will be a blessing and encouragement to you. As Simon mentioned at the start of the service, um, well, thank you for all being here. Um, we were a little bit worried about how this would go, moving around to different places. I think that's actually a good thing in the providence of God. As Simon mentioned at the start of the service, it's really easy, isn't it, to feel rusted on. That church is just part of the routine, and it should be part of the routine of our lives. It should be one of the core commitments that structures our lives. Um, but I think it's good to move around. Why? Because we're on mission for Jesus. Um, we're on mission to see people grow as followers of Jesus. That's really the theme that we're looking at this morning through and in the coming weeks through the Gospel of Mark. A little very quick update because this is something that's a really pressing concern, not just for our congregation here at Cornerstone, but for some of the other Presbyterian churches in Hobart, like Seoul and also like Crossroads, is finding an appropriate venue to meet, particularly long term. Uh, a very, very quick update. Um, there's been a lot of pressure on us recently, um, hence the prayer this morning about where the Chinese group is going to meet. Um, it was sort of feeling like, at least, the perception was we were getting sort of squeezed out of the Greek club. Um, in the providence, you've got to marvel at this, the wonderful providence of God. Uh, Libby and I met with, well, we planned to meet with the operations manager, and we ended up getting a fortuitous meeting with the president of the Greek club, who just wanted to reaffirm to us his full support of us as tenants at the Greek club and wanted to make assure us that he would do everything that he can to, so that we could remain as tenants at the Greek club. So that's a real praise point and an answer to prayer. Yeah, we should thank God. That is wonderful. You don't know how, um, for those of you who are visiting and don't know how the Presbyterian Church is structured, we have elders, of which I am one, I am the teaching elder, uh, but uh, we look after the spiritual needs of the church, and we have deacons who really look after the practical needs of the church, and then there's the board of management who look after all the financial matters. This has been such a pressing concern for the board of management. Uh, they do so much behind the scenes, um, and we really should really thank them as well for everything that they do. But can I just say, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be having our annual congregational meeting, and if you really think that the Lord is calling you and has gifted you to be a deacon, and that is an office in the church open to men and women, that you can see that you can serve, I guess, what you might want to call the mercy ministry parts of the church, uh, being able to really help those that are in need, if you feel like you have that kind of pastoral care heart that can reach out to others, then please come and see myself or one of the elders um, about serving in that role. We've had lots of people, they're all up for re-election at the moment. Uh, I think one or two have said that they're not going to stand again. Um, but yeah, a wonderful way of serving the body of Christ. One final thing before we look at God's word. Um, and it's an important thing because it involves one of our sisters here at Cornerstone. Catherine Searle uh, has uh, recently been um, pre-selected, I think, for the seat of Clark. Um, now, I'm not trying to be political and say you have to vote Liberal. It's not that. But please keep our sister in Christ in, in your prayers. Um, as everybody would know here, Catherine is a sincere um, follower of Jesus. She seeks to serve the Lord in the public square in this way. Um, please keep her in your prayers as she does that. Um, if you've ever seen the interview that I did with her, um, it's actually been the most popular interview I've ever done. Um, and it, because she talks about her own 
struggle, she would tell you that, with being single. Of how she's desperately wanted to be married over the years, and yet the Lord hasn't given that to her. Uh, and yet I see in her, as I see in many of the single people in our church, just a wonderful model of seeking to serve Jesus. And so she's seeking to serve him in this way. Please keep her in your prayers, as well as always the obvious ones like Jono and others that you know that are believers. It's a tough job being a parliamentarian uh, because in our democracy, you have, to, you have to represent everybody in the community while staying true to your convictions. That's a tough, tough task. Uh, any of you who have been in leadership will know how tough that is. Please keep them in your prayers. In fact, why don't we stop right now? We're going to thank God for his provision. We're going to pray for Catherine. We're going to pray for ourselves before we look at God's word. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you that you are such a good and loving God. We thank you for your provision for us in being able to meet in different facilities each week. Lord, as our board of management has served us so well in... Um, in behind-the-scenes anonymous acts of service, they know how difficult it is, Lord, to find a suitable or appropriate venue. Lord, we want to thank you this week and praise you uh, for the president of the Greek Club, for his gracious and generous support of us. And we want to pray that you would bless him, that you would bless the board, and that you would bless that entire community, Lord. Well, we pray that the love of Christ might, and the truth of his gospel might be known. And Lord, we uh, pray that we would continue to act with integrity as tenants. And Lord, we want to pray for our sister, Catherine, uh, as well as for brothers that we know, like Jono. We thank you, Lord, for these men and women that know and love you. Lord, it is such a tough gig to be in public office. Uh, what a high calling that is, Lord, of being accountable to you and yet being judged so often by the community, often harshly. We pray for our brother and our sister. We pray that you would give them wisdom. We pray that you give them courage and strength and integrity for the task. Uh, Lord, we pray that um, you would lift them up when they're feeling down and that, Lord, you would give them a firm resolve that their foreheads might be like flint, that they would stand for the truth of your word and of your ways because we know therein is human flourishing. Father, finally, we pray for ourselves as we sit at your feet now, uh, like Mary did all those centuries ago. Lord, help us to resist that spirit of Martha that would just want to be busy, busy, busy. And instead, help us to sit quietly at your feet and listen to you speak to us through your word. Quiet in our hearts. May you speak to us now by your Holy Spirit. And may you be with me that both what I say and how I say it would be edifying to us all and glorifying to you. And we ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you'd like to open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to be reading from the second half of Mark's Gospel, from verse 21. As Levi gave us such a great praise or introduction, um, you'll see that this is really all about Jesus' authority, and in particular, in particular over evil. Ah, what a pressing thing that is. As I've prepared this sermon, I've felt so keenly uh, the attacks of the evil one. Because we do have a very real enemy in the devil. Uh, and yet we have such an infinitely greater saviour in the Lord Jesus Christ. The light truly does shine in the darkness and the darkness can never overcome it. 
So, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? New teaching, a new teaching, and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons and he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why. I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him. And he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. There can be really no doubt, can there, that Jesus is the greatest person to have ever lived in the history of the world. Uh, as somebody has once said, history is his story. Everything around our lives revolves around him. Even our dating system is significantly revolves around his life, death, and most importantly of all, resurrection. 
Because today is 2024 AD, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. You would think that it's going to say after he died, because that would be the obvious, isn't it? BC is before Christ, AD is after he lived and then died. But the glorious truth that we all celebrate and is at the very centre of our hope and is non-negotiable is that Jesus rose again physically from the dead because therein is our hope that we too, even though we die, will one day be resurrected from the dead. Jesus has authority over everything, but the greatest authority that he has of all is authority over death. Jesus holds the keys of life and death in his hands. And as such, his words and his life continue to shape more people around the globe today, 2,000 years after he lived, died and rose, than anyone else in the history of the world. Which is all the more incredible when you realise that he never wrote a book. When he died, he had no money. And even after he'd resurrected from the dead, many of his followers deserted him. In fact, at the time before Pentecost, there was about people that followed Jesus, about the number that are in this room, 120. And yet it grew to be a global reality. Isn't that incredible? Humanly speaking, his life has gone on to have such an incredible and powerful effect. And even though I sometimes laugh at this, each generation, there's always someone, maybe a couple, that want to, I think, so arrogantly declare that this is it. This is the last generation for the church. After this, it's all over. The church of Jesus Christ just has this incredible way of surviving and even thriving. It's almost as if something supernatural is occurring. What would the world be like, though, if Jesus never existed? Have you ever thought of that? Many people live today, even in Hobart, especially in Hobart, as if he never existed. And sadly, the tragic results of such a decision speak for themselves. Because once we turn our back on God, friends, our life is marred by brokenness, meaninglessness, and pain, of futility and frustration. Oh, sure, we can try to fill that spiritual void with pleasure and the accumulation of things and maybe even to try and make a name for ourselves, but that never really satisfies, does it? The reason why the Lord Jesus Christ came is to reconcile us to the Father so that we might be reunited to him. For Jesus is not only the creator and sustainer of the world, but he is also its saviour and its judge. And because of that, we can truly, only truly experience life to the full when we know and are known by him. Because if Jesus never existed, then the truth of the matter is, as profound as this is to contemplate, you and I would be gone in an instant. He upholds our every breath the next breath you take has been sustained by Jesus and he could take it away like he did with the rich fool who built bigger and bigger barns thinking that he'd stored up for himself such security 
until Jesus said to him, you fool, this night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get everything that you have stored up for yourself? Who will get it? As we make our way through Mark's gospel, we're continually confronted, aren't we, with the question of who Jesus is. As we saw last week, the word immediately occurs 42 times in Mark's gospel. You almost think it's Mark's favourite word. Whereas in the rest of the New Testament, the word immediately appears 12 times. 42 times in one book, Mark's gospel, the shortest of the gospels. 12 times in the rest of the New Testament. And so Mark is kind of like the action, or could you say, as somebody has said in our young, young blokes discipleship group, it's like the jiu-jitsu gospel. Because there is just no let up of the action. And we're constantly confronted with the truth of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. There's no let up here as you read through it. And I'd encourage you to take the time to just read through Mark's gospel. It should take you about an hour or if you're quick, less. As we come to the second half of chapter one, we're immediately, pun intended, confronted with a demonstration of Jesus' authority. And as you can see from your outlines, there are three key areas, uh, obviously all related to his preaching, Satan, sickness, and finally, surprisingly, sin. There's a little break, or what I've called a salah, of the action in verse 35. But as we'll soon see, I think that too is significant, not only uh, for Jesus, but I think also for a very challenging model for ourselves. We start then with Jesus' authority over Satan. Now, the existence of demons is not something which the West is really all that au fait with, are they? I find that people from the East automatically resonate when you talk about demons. From the West, not so much. But as more and more people, and I've noticed this in, particularly in Tasmania since I've been here because it's a growing trend, as more and more people turn to outright paganism and the occult, and in particular, like has so prolific even still to this day throughout the East, the worship of idols, the more and more the reality of the demonic is affirmed. A couple of years ago, um, many of you will know this story, um, but uh, a lady uh, in the congregation called Renata got converted out of the New Age movement, more broadly speaking. Signific significantly, she tried to perform an exorcism on herself because her spirit guides had convinced them, or she'd realised that they'd become actually malevolent and were trying to destroy her, and they had instructed her that the way that they would leave is if in the middle of August she would go bathe for an hour in the Derwent. Well, yes, they would leave and she would leave this earth as well. Because of this, um, she was pulled out of the Derwent, unconscious, with hypothermia, and, as you could imagine, put under a health order in the Royal Hobart Psych Unit to prove that she could no longer be a danger to herself. A couple of us in the congregation visited her over a couple of week, a two-week period before she finally went for her appeal to the medical board, which you have to do to prove that you're not a danger to yourself or anyone else. The way she presented her case was, I think, the most clear and logical presentation of any presentation, let alone her own mental health, that I have seen. 
She was just as logical and as straightforward as, as I am hopefully with you today. But one of the doctors argued that she shouldn't nonetheless be released because she believed that there was such a thing as demons. Which was strange because at this point she wasn't a Christian and she was saying, oh, I know there's demons because I've asked them into my life. It made for a very interesting discussion with the board, especially when Ruth Burgess and I also affirmed our belief in such things. And as many of you know, Ruth is currently a chaplain at the hospital. Um, not a good look for the hospital to put chaplains in the psych ward. Uh, and Ruth used to be heavily involved in yoga and used to be a swami. You wouldn't know to look at her now as she stands up the front and leads us in singing. But the Lord has wonderfully freed her from the dominion of darkness and brought, us in, and brought her into the kingdom of light. But that's just the point, isn't it? Jesus is the one who is able to free us from the authority of Satan. Amen? Significantly, the demon which Jesus confronted in the Jewish synagogue, which is itself a strange situation for the first exorcism in Mark's gospel to be recorded, says this to him. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, it's important to slow down and, and unpack what this demon actually says because it's really quite informative. For instance, isn't it diabolical how the unclean spirit accuses Jesus of only being interested in its destruction. That's really the chief aim or purpose of the devil, I would have thought. For instance, Jesus says in John 10, the thief, referring to Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. So it's a little bit rich for this demon to say, so the only purpose you've come is to destroy us? Well, and the truth is, yes, that is the purpose why Jesus has come. As the Apostle John says in his first epistle, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So if you think that this whole idea of the existence of evil is somehow a manifestation of insanity, well, that would make Jesus himself insane because he believes in the existence of the devil. But more importantly is this. John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So the demon was right. That's exactly why Jesus has come. Demons actually know better than everyone else what Jesus has come to do. In fact, sometimes I think you know, we often think, like James says in his epistle, that we believe in God and that's enough. And what does James say? Even the demons believe in God and shudder. Demons often have, because they've been around for so long, I think sometimes better than theology than, than a lot of us. They know what's going on. Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. And one of the primary ways that he achieves that is first of all through a perversion of the preaching of God's word. 
The demon also refers to Jesus, though, as the Holy One of God. Now, as you would have hopefully seen in your growth groups this week, there is actually only one other figure in the Bible who is referred to with this title. And that is the infamous Samson. Samson lived at a time when the Bible says, at that time Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. And as such, God's people were marked with every kind of moral depravity and spiritual delusion because they had no king. Everyone did what was fit in his own eyes. That's the theme song to hell. I did it my way. The Lord raised up a series of saviours or judges, though, to deliver his people from their oppressors. One of the most famous of these, even the children know about this, is Samson, who is renowned for his supernatural strength. Unfortunately, he had more brawn than brains. And his life is almost a comical illustration of revenge, lust and personal pride. With Jesus, though, we see someone who is infinitely stronger than Samson, as well as infinitely more righteous. In fact, we see the one who is the king of kings. And as a result, the people are all amazed at the authority that he has, not only to teach God's word, but also over his power, over the enemies of God, over evil. The second way in which Jesus demonstrates his authority is over sickness. Notice, if you have your Bibles open, how the Bible makes a careful distinction between sickness and Satan. That's important, friends. We should avoid always of making the mistake that the Bible had a primitive worldview and it saw mental illness as the equivalent of demon possession. It did not. Often Jesus will heal people of epilepsy and then he'll go on to heal them of demon possession on separate occasions. The ancient world, it might be ancient, but they weren't stupid. They understood the existence and the reality of these different kinds of things. If you take a look down at verse 34, you'll see clearly... Jesus healed many who had various diseases and he also drove out many demons. Now, as we saw from our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 35, though, when the Messiah came, one of the things that he would do, one of the things that you would see that would make sure that you knew that this person was the Messiah and not a false Christ was he would heal. This was one of the signs which would prove that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ and if I can just add this as a side for the moment, one of the things Muhammad could never produce. When Muhammad came along 500 years after Jesus and people said, well, you claim to be a prophet that supersedes even Jesus. What signs and wonders can you perform? Are there any? The answer Muhammad gives, because I slay you in battle. That's not a sign or wonder. That's a warmonger. That's more of the devil who seeks to steal and kill and destroy it's not of God again never make the mistake friends of thinking the God of Islam is the God of the Bible he is not they are polar opposites Isaiah writes then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped then the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy that's the work of the Messiah only God can do that only God can heal where there was sickness. Only God can restore where there was brokenness. Only God can bring life where there was death. 
These are some of the signs that the promised Messiah had arrived. And it really was Jesus. The most powerful of which is the healing of the sick. Now, clearly, sickness is something which still exists in our world. Uh, And people who follow Jesus also fall sick and die. Because even though we've been saved, we continue to live in a world which is characterised by death, disease and decay. I don't have to go over this for anyone, do you? This is what we learned last year from the book of Job. (laughs) Indeed, even though the devil is a defeated foe, that doesn't mean, does it, that sometimes as Christians, that we'll be attacked by Satan. Don't believe me? Try and have regular quiet times with your family and just see how everything falls apart. As we saw last year, it's why the Apostle Paul outlines in Ephesians 6 what it means to put on the whole armour of God. Why do you need to put on the armour of God if there's never going to be an attack from the evil one? But with the coming of Jesus, we see the first fruits of his victory over evil and over sickness. One of the things which stands out about Jesus' miraculous works, though, is how he tells people to keep it a secret. That's surprising, isn't it? It's almost the opposite of what you would expect him to do. In fact, it's the thing that you expect prosperity preachers or false teachers to do, to parade around their victories. Jesus does the opposite. He's telling people, don't tell anybody about me. I sent out some material this week which explains why Jesus does this more fully. Let me briefly summarise why I think it does. There's three different aspects to this. First, so that people don't make him a military leader. His kingdom is not of this world. Seeing all of these amazing signs and wonders would have brought him into direct conflict with the Roman authorities and derailed his entire mission. Second, because he came to fulfil the role of the suffering servant as prophesied by the Old Testament in passages like Isaiah. It's crucial, friends, to see that Jesus' fundamental role as a suffering servant is one of humility, is one of suffering. Our king is gentle and lowly of heart. He became, if he became a public celebrity, though, he couldn't have done that. Finally, it's because Jesus' identity cannot truly be known until he dies on the cross and rises again from the dead. You don't know Jesus until that happens. You see, when we read the Gospels, we're not really reading biographies. Biographies are life stories of someone. What you're reading is what you might call a thanography. That is a story of someone's death. Because the whole focus of the Gospels is that this person's come to die. Even from the very beginning, at Jesus' birth, he's given gifts which signify he's going to die. Yes, he's given gold, right, which signifies that he's going to be a great king. Yes, he's given frankincense, which means he's going to be a great priest because he offers incense. But he's given myrrh. Do you see the shock of that? Myrrh is what you give to embalm a body when they die. Could you imagine, I even loathe to use this example, but could you imagine going to a baby shower and saying to a mother, here's a little coffin, you're going to need this one day. The horror of that. 
But that's what Jesus is given because they know that's central to his purpose. That's the reason he came. He came to die and rise again so he could provide salvation, so he could defeat death once and for all. And it's only after that has happened that you can really understand who Jesus is and then is the time to go and tell everybody. And yet, ironically, that's the time when we go, oh, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> that's the time when we're most reluctant. Until then, though, until that has been achieved, his identity has to remain a secret. Now, even up until this point, you've seen so much action in Mark's gospel, haven't you? You know, he's healing the sick in dramatic ways. You know, Peter's own mother-in-law gets healed. And then, you know, he's casting out demons at just a word. He only has to say the word and they're gone. There's no debate. There's no long protracted argument. He has complete authority. And then you read verse 35. Have a look at this with me. All of a sudden, Jesus stops. And Mark writes, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. All of a sudden, the action stops, and we see Jesus communing with the Father. In the Psalms, we often see this little side annotation. I'm sure you've all seen it. It says Salah. And it just is a musical rest. I'm not very musical. The Lord passed over me in that regard. But I do appreciate the structure of music and especially the interludes between um, verses. I know what I'm saying is really obvious, but we don't just sing line after line after line, do we? Actually, the rests are really, really important. Because they give us a chance to stop and reflect on what we've just sung, as well as prepare to prepare our minds for what we're just about to sing. And in the same way, friends, our lives should have this beautiful rhythm of work and rest. Work and rest. Rest is a really precious thing. Rest, rest is an act of worship. But it can also be difficult to do because we get so much satisfaction out of work. In fact, we get so much identity out of work. And it's during those times where we need to reach out to him and we need to, like Jesus, stop and spend time in prayer. Oh, that is such a difficult thing to do, isn't it? Can you relate to what I'm saying? How much better is it then if we take time out ourselves and spend time in prayer? If it was needed for the Son of God, how much more, friends, than it would, it's needed for you and me? Sometimes we need to intentionally carve out space where we can come to the Lord in a way which is unhurried and free from distraction. Do you know the greatest spiritual discipline? Some of you will laugh and think that I'm joking, but okay, I'm really not. It's going to bed. Going to bed early so that you can get up in the morning. That's where the spiritual battle is often most often fought. It takes a lot of discipline, friends, to go to bed, to sleep, so that you can intentionally prepare to get up. I've been reflecting on all this this, this week, whether it be going for a walk, driving into a remote spot, or sometimes you know, our lives are full of you know, that static, what they call white noise. 
And when that's all around you, it's very difficult to discern the Lord's voice. What's his will for you? To unburden your heart in prayer and instead, you're constantly on this rat race, this wheel of activity. And then you're just really like Martha. When Jesus is saying there's only one thing that's needed and it's to be like Mary. Sit quietly at my feet. Listen to me speak to you through your word. Be unproductive. Now, I know this is the Martha spirit in us, right? But there are so many things that we've got to do. That's exactly what Martha said. Lord, you've got to tell her. Why is she not helping? There are so many things that need to be done. Whenever you've got that angst in your heart, you've fallen into that Martha spirit of being overly busy. And it's actually not helpful or godly. In fact, it might even point to a deeper issue of idolatry in your heart. Of finding your identity in your work or maybe even your ministry rather than in the Lord. Again, when our computers start to run down in batteries, what do we do? Plug them in, recharge them, we charge our phones. If only we could do that with our souls. <laughs> replug, replug. Charge is low. Have you spent time with the Lord lately? When was the last time you got up early while dark? <coughs> Just to earnestly seek God. That the Father calls you to commune with him. If the Lord Jesus did it, how much more do we? Yes, he had authority over Satan and sickness, but the spiritual wisdom and power to engage in that kind of ministry can only be done out of a deep walk and communion with God. It's why Jesus deliberately doesn't engage with the large crowds. That's the temptation, isn't it? Sometimes success is the greatest temptation we face. Because you would think out of the flesh, he would just keep going to where all the crowds are. Bigger crowds, bigger numbers, bigger influence. What does he do? He does the opposite. Well, let's go somewhere else and preach. Just because it's popular or successful doesn't mean it's the right thing for you to do. Sometimes, oftentimes, the thing that the Lord's calling you to do is the quiet thing, is the anonymous thing, is the humble thing. The world will always say the opposite, but following Jesus often means going to quiet places and fulfilling obscure opportunities. For instance, how many people here, I wonder, have been impacted by the loving, faithful witness of another Christian who no one else has heard about. I reckon it'd be 90, 90, over 90% of us. I think of the pastor who first explained the gospel to me. He was one of the most gifted preachers I'd, I'd ever heard, but he took the time one afternoon to explain the gospel to me. I was a bit thick, not getting it. I don't think I ever really spoke to him again, and I, I'm, I'm certain he would not have known the impact that he had on me that day. But what he said completely changed my thinking and the direction of my life. That's often how it is, isn't it? Your mum speaks a word into your life, your auntie, your friend, your Sunday school teacher. The Lord chooses to use the most 
us the most powerfully in the small and little things. That's where faithfulness is tested. Just think of the people who have been most influential in your life. They're often not the people whom you knew that were powerful or impressive. They were just loving and faithful. So be encouraged if you're serving the Lord in a ministry that might not seem significant or all that important. God delights in displaying his power in weakness. He delights in that. And if you're strong right now, watch out because you'll soon be weak. That's Jesus' intent. Indeed, that's the normal way in which Jesus plans to use his servants because when we're weak, we're like him, the suffering servant. The third and final area which Jesus demonstrates his authority is a wonderful illustration of this truth. Uh, I know we've been going for a little bit, so buckle in and just watch this last one. It's his authority over sin. It's not immediately obvious that it's sin because Jesus has authority over um, he is obviously the healing of a leper. But lepers were people who were ceremonially unclean. Lepers are people that couldn't live with the people of God. Lepers were people that were ostracised from the community. Don't believe me, have a look at the book of Leviticus sometime and you'll see that even touching them meant that you yourself had to be excluded. Now, on one level, there's a logical reason to this. It's because they would spread infectious disease. But on another level, it also signified their own estrangement from God. What Jesus done then here is absolutely amazing because Jesus is reaching out, notice this, and he's touching the man. You can easily miss the significance of this act because the man with leprosy is immediately healed and we go, wow, that's impressive. That's cool. But the real shock comes when you realise that he's healed by the touch of Jesus. Now, Jesus could have healed him with a word. But this time he heals him with a touch. Why? Because there's a transference going on. His uncleanness is coming into Jesus, who's absorbing that uncleanness and in exchange making him whole, making him pure. What a great illustration of the gospel. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's this beautiful short story which I sent out to you, you know, the ragman, the ragman, the Christ by this American Walter Wenger. And, and in it, you'll, if you've taken the time to read it, hopefully you'll read my emails in case you haven't. Or you're visiting with us, I'll explain this for the visitors because visitors, our members, always read everything I send out. <laughs> a man comes through all the streets saying, the ragman, the ragman, and he says, rags, old rags for new, old rags for new. And as he goes through the streets, he sees all of these different kinds of people in varying degrees of distress. He comes across a heartbroken young woman and he takes her her tear-stained handkerchief. Then there is a young girl who has been beaten and he takes her blood-soaked bonnet. And then there's a man who's lost his arm and can no longer work and so he takes his sleeveless jacket. And then finally, he sees another man who's been overcome with drunkenness and he's lying in the gutter and he takes his dirty, filthy blanket. 
But then the miracle that happens is that each person that he takes these things from, he absorbs those things, those weaknesses, those sicknesses, those broken deformities into himself and in exchange makes them whole. And then at the end of the story, he dies and then is resurrected to glorious new life. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus is giving you a first fruits taste of here. You see, he doesn't just take upon himself our sin. He absorbs it like a sponge. He defeats sin with immortal life, overcoming the effects of disease and even death. The light shines in the darkness. It dispels the darkness. This is precisely what Jesus is demonstrating here at the end of Mark 1. By casting out demons, healing the sick, and most of all, touching the leper, he's demonstrating that he and he alone has the authority over the strong man. The stronger one, then the strong man has come and he's binding the strong man so that he can rob his possessions. Who is that? It's people. What a comfort God's word is. Are we burdened with sickness? then we should come, we should know that there's going to come a day when we'll be resurrected from the dead. When God's people will be like a beautiful bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. When he will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death or crying or pain for the old order of things will pass away. The time in which Satan himself will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire once and for all never to accuse or tempt or condemn anyone ever again. Since we know what God has promised, doesn't that give you hope? There is no enemy that you need to fear. Because Jesus will comfort, he'll strengthen and he'll sustain Let's keep trusting in Jesus then, friends, even though everything around us is frustration, is dark. Just because we know the shepherd doesn't mean that we won't through, walk through dark valleys. We will. You will. But the reason we can endure and persevere is because we know that there is a shepherd right beside you. And his rod and his, calf, his staff will comfort you. For Jesus is alive and he's interceding for you. Yes, you, even now in heaven. He exists even though you can't see him or feel him. But the challenge is we walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. Lord, we want to humble ourselves before you and like Mary, sit quietly at your feet handing over all our grief into your hands, all of the pain or the frustration of living in this broken world. Lord, you've given us a clear vision this morning of Jesus, of his authority over Satan, over sickness, over sin. And Lord, we want to pray especially for those in our number this morning who are suffering. We pray that you will comfort them and we pray that you'll use each of us to be a comfort, that you'll give us eyes this morning to see those divine appointments, those God-given, created opportunities by you 
and that we might be your hands and feet of love. Lord, we uh, pray for your spirit to be poured out upon us. Lord, you know the heartache of each heart. And we pray that you would meet each one of us where we are at. That you would walk with us and that you would strengthen our faith in you. Lord, this world is dark, very dark, but you are the light of the world. And we trust in you. We walk by faith and not by sight. Thank you for hearing our prayers. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.